Notes from America is supported by Future Hindsight, an award-winning podcast that shares big ideas about participating in American democracy beyond voting but short of running for office. Join host Mila Atmos for stimulating and incisive conversations with citizen changemakers on topics ranging from gerrymandering, policing equity, and voting rights. In this election year, Future Hindsight offers an unaffiliated perspective into what's at stake and how citizens can make an impact at the local, state, and national level. You'll always come away with something hopeful. Tune in every Thursday to get engaged and stay engaged. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. When you hear the term crack cocaine, what do you think of? I think of urban areas with impoverished people. People like lay down on the corners and like asking for change. Junkie, like do anything for it, selling their mama stuff and you know, doing some crazy stuff to get it. Uh, Whitney Houston's interview with Crack is Whack. Uh... more. <laughs> Anybody that participates in those activities, I'd probably stay away from. People like trying to get themselves together, like trying to lie and be like they want money, just go get other stuff. And I think of people that's like really addicted and trying to get themselves off of it, but it don't work. Something not good for your body. When I think of crack cocaine, I think about how it took over D.C. in the 70s and kind of destroyed the city, and now it's coming back. Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. Welcome to the show. It's hard to overstate the impact that crack cocaine had on American life, on our culture, on our politics, on our economy, and on our story about ourselves as a nation. For more than a decade, it was just everywhere. And so were the many myths and misunderstandings that surrounded and frankly prolonged the epidemic of addiction. Journalist Donovan X. Ramsey says the epidemic invades his earliest memories. It was just that present. So he needed to understand it. He needed to get a more clear-eyed view of this thing that became almost like a boogeyman. And the result is his new book, When Crack Was King, A People's History of a Misunderstood Era. Donovan, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, Kai. Thank you for having me. This book is full of cautionary tales and missed signals, or at least that's kind of how I read it. And I want to start with one story that you tell that's not explicitly about crack, but that I think says a lot about your project here. It's the story of Washington Post reporter Janet Cook. In 1980, she was a rising star at the Washington Post, a Black woman, who published a now infamous story. The story was called Jimmy's World. And it was full of shocking details that, frankly, really kind of called out for skepticism. But when it hit the streets in 1980, it was rapturously received by readers and political leaders alike. So what was it that folks would have read when they picked up the Washington Post that day in 1980? People would have picked up um, the Washington Post and saw on the cover um, a story about a nine-year-old heroin addict who was the product of an incestuous relationship between his grandfather and mother, whose stepfather calmed him down every day after school by shooting him up with heroin, who lived in a heroin shooting gallery. Um, This was on the front page of the paper. And of course, because Jimmy was an anonymous source, according to Cook and the Washington Post, it was accompanied by illustrations. And as you mentioned, you know, there were lots of Uh, signs, obvious to anybody that's ever made the news, that the story was a complete fabrication. Um, One, he had never encountered any um, public health workers, social workers in his nine years of life. So there was no record of a Jimmy um, at at schools, through the hospitals, any of that. People who had covered the community that Jimmy supposedly lived in, in D.C., Um, Other reporters, mostly Black reporters, said, you know, I've never heard of this story, (laughs) that nobody knows Jimmy. So, you know, there were lots of reasons to not publish the story. And the Washington Post not only published it, but put it on the front page of the paper 
and nominated the story for a Pulitzer Prize. Which it won. And then it was discovered that it was a complete fabrication, that she had made up the story whole cloth. And uh, Janet Cook, who was at that point the first Black woman to win a Pulitzer for reporting, became the only person to ever give a Pulitzer Prize back. What was it about the psyche at the dawn of the 80s, you think, that made people work so hard to believe this story? Like, you had to go out of your way to believe it, really, when you look back at it. I think that, you know, from the earliest moments of this nation's history, there has been a a need to make Black people pathological, uh, otherworldly, um, beneath humanity. And for a long time, people said it was biology. And when that was no longer popular, it became culture. So what we see in Jimmy's world is a story perfectly made to explain away the ills of the urban ghetto through a sick Black culture. Mm. Everything sick about Black people that you could imagine was going on in Jimmy's world. And, you know, that that um, desire to kind of tell that kind of story then continues and explodes during the crack era. You also write uh, about the psyche among different classes of Black Americans at the time. And you have a whole chapter on the song Ain't No Stopping Us Now. This is the 1979 smash hit from R&B duo McFadden and Whitehead. What does this song represent in Black America at the time? So the song comes out of Philly International during the 70s. And it's a beautiful song with um, a great sort of like funky, disco-esque beat, lots of horns. And it emerges in the 70s as, as a new Black national anthem. This idea that whatever was holding us back is now behind us. And there's this bright future ahead of us. It's sort of uh, pre-Reagan's morning in America. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's the same sort of vibe, right? And um, I think that it's so representative of a period that I didn't know of before, which is, I mean, I'm, I'm born in 1987, so the crack epidemic is actually older than me. I wrote this book in part because I wanted to understand who we were as a community um, before crack. And I saw in that period, sort of symbolized by this song, incredible hope that we could enter the mainstream and, you know, maybe hold on to some of our Blackness in the process. Uh, So you see, you know, music like that, but then you also see shows like The Jeffersons that are about moving on up. Um, You see um, Webster, who's adopted by a white family, and and that story's about sort of a fish out of water, a Blackfish, out of water. Mm-hmm. The same thing with different strokes and give me a break. Um, again, there are these Black characters who, who come from Black neighborhoods who are now in white spaces. Yeah. And um, it's there in the music as well. It's legacy artists like Aretha Franklin crossing over with George Michael or Patti LaBelle, you know, putting away the go-go boots and the LeMay of LaBelle to make songs like On My Own with Michael McDonald. There was a lot of hope that Black people could cross over. And I should say, in the process, also exposing a rift along class lines in the Black community. Yeah, and you, you know, you write about that with, with this song, Ain't No Stopping Us Now, how it's almost a taunt to the part of the Black community that is not crossing over. Um, you're keen for readers to understand a grief, I think is the word you use. What is the grief you're talking about? You know, I came up with that language because I wanted to to understand what would lead people, really a generation of young people, to addiction. You know, we use words like disaffection now when we talk about white folks in the middle of the country using Mm. opioids to explain how a feeling could sweep up a large group of people. But I don't think that we ever thought we as a nation, about all that Black Americans were mourning 
in the 70s and 80s. The civil rights movement was an incredibly hopeful period, marked by, you know, incredible leaders who did things that were truly otherworldly, right? That Martin Luther King Jr.'s commitment to nonviolence and, and, and his hope in America was really beyond anything, <laughs> you know, that I think the average Black American could imagine. Right. And then as a nation, we saw him die a Black death. We saw him killed like a thug on the street. That's a blow, you know, that, and that not happened to just him, but so many of our leaders. And, and then people to still have to live in America's ghettos and for the rest of the country to move on like it never happened. You know, I think that grief really is the only word for that. And when you think critically about what, you know, a substance like cocaine is, it's a stimulant. It gives people feelings of euphoria and confidence and fearlessness and energy so I think that even just looking at crack as a substance can suggest what it was people were going through yeah. who wanted to use it, right? That they were down and wanting to feel up. Your language, when you write about it, is quite striking. You call it tailor-made. Crack is tailor-made for the moment. Yeah, that was something that, um, you know, aside from just kind of studying the substance in my interviews um, across the year. I, I traveled to all the hardest hit cities, um, about 10 in total, and I interviewed people who were impacted, including, you know, hundreds of people who, who actually used crack. And that was something that really came through, was that these people wanted to feel good. Whether they were um, coming from a lot of grief, both personally and on a societal level, or whether or not they were celebrating that they were often the person having the most fun at the party and they just stayed at the party too long mm. and that they didn't know what the nation's response would be to the way that they party. And, um, you know, and that's important to, to highlight because I think lots of those folks got flattened out to this sort of crackhead trope. And as a nation, we didn't ask enough questions about who they were and the choices that they made. I'm talking with journalist Donovan X. Ramsey about his new book, When Crack Was King, A People's History of a Misunderstood Era. We need to take a break. We're not taking calls this week, but I do want to ask you a question about an upcoming show. If you eat a plant-based diet, what pushed you to make that change? And did it have anything to do with climate change? You can answer by going to notesfromamerica.org and looking for the record button to leave us a voicemail right there. Please do include your name and where you're calling from, and we will use it in an upcoming show. Okay, coming up, more of my conversation with Donovan Ramsey. We will get into that crackhead trope he mentioned. Stay with us. Hi, my name's Regina, and I'm a producer with the show. You may remember that last year, we started the Notes from America Summer Playlist. We collected submissions from you and curated a playlist that everyone could enjoy. Well, summer is here again, and I'm happy to announce we're launching our second summer playlist. A couple weeks ago, I had a conversation with the guys from a band called Wake Island. They talked about how music has become such a powerful outlet for identity filling a need as they search for their place in the Arab-American diaspora. So now it's your turn. What's a song that represents your personal diaspora story? Here's how to send us your response. Go to notesfromamerica.org and look for the record button to leave us a message. Start with your name and where you're recording from. Then tell us the name of that song, the artist, and a short story that goes along with it. Feel free to include a little bit about your background as well. Make it your own. And please make sure that your recording is at least a minute long. 
We'll gather all the songs and your stories in Spotify playlists that will drop regularly all summer long. All right, I think that's everything. Thanks for coming to my TED Talk, and I can't wait to hear from you. Is there anyone out there who still isn't clear about what doing drugs does? Okay, last time. This is your brain. This is drugs. This is your brain on drugs. Any questions? Drugs. Some of the big kids do them. But my mom and dad helped get this D.A.R.E. anti-drug program in our school. It's run by specially trained police. Now Now we're we're saying no to drugs. Welcome back. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright, and I'm talking with journalist Donovan X. Ramsey about his new book, When Crack Was King, A People's History of a Misunderstood Era. And Donovan, I grew up in the 80s. The story of crack was everywhere in my youth. I mean, it was just an overwhelming part of the public conversation, trickling, you know, all the way down to the playground. (laughs) We would call each other crackheads. Um, You write about how it came up for you as sort of the boogeyman in your life, too. Talk about that. It did. You know, I, um, you know, born in 87, crack always existed in my life. HIV, AIDS always existed. Um, so I was kind of steeped in this great fear of things that previous generations hadn't been. Um, you know, I went through the D.A.R.E. program. Um, you know, I... I you uh, yourself, you, know, aside you were from, in the D.A.R.E. program. <laughs> yes, I myself, I got a D.A.R.E. t-shirt. And at the end of the year, we went to a concert that we were escorted by our um, school D.A.R.E. officer. Because each, each school was, was assigned an officer who would ask you questions about the drug use in your community and in your family. It was a snitch program, really. <laughs> <laughs> and then, um, you know, and then you would learn songs about being off of, you know, sort of resisting drugs. And the reward at the end of the year was a T-shirt. And they took you to a concert where a bunch of police officers who were also musicians performed the songs that you learned. Um, if you wow. can, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> wow. you know, but that was who taught me about drugs, really. Right. Um, that and then, of course, the um, what I actually saw in my neighborhood, you know, I um, grew up in Columbus, Ohio, and I was very, very poor growing up and raised by, you know, a single mom who did her absolute best and tried to protect us from the the environment that we were in. So I remember, you know, my my neighbors, people of my community being strung out on crack. Um, you know, my very first bike that my mom saved for years and years to get, I probably didn't get it until I was maybe seven or eight. And the front wheel blew out on my bike. And I remember I might've been like a mile away from home and I was uh, afraid to go home and tell my mom that I had messed up my bike. And I'm, you know, standing there trying to figure it out. And this guy that I had kind of seen around comes up and he says, you know, it looks like you lost some air in your tire. You know, I can fix that for you. Um, So I'm so excited. I give him my bike. Um, He disappears behind a house. Uh, Ten minutes pass, 20 minutes pass, an hour passes. And I realize I think this guy stole my bike. So I have to go home and tell my mom. And the first thing she says is, why would you give up your, your bike to a crackhead? Mm. You know, when I described the guy, she knew who I was talking about. Right. Um, there's no way that you can grow up like that and not be a little bit afraid of your neighbors and afraid for what could happen to you. You know, if you made a, a poor choice as they had, And it definitely um, steered me away from drugs. But I do think that there was a consequence, which is that I felt a lot of distance between me and those people. I don't think nearly enough has been said about this particular dynamic and the way this epidemic tore at the inside the community. The relationships between Black people in the same neighborhood, in the same families— Just the the wound it left. Yeah. I think that that dynamic is marked by so much fear 
and shame and distrust from really the people that you need to stay alive, (laughs) you know, that we became actually more vulnerable because we didn't have each other anymore. And that, you know, is the truth for people who distance themselves away from family members that were selling drugs or doing drugs, or just also the way that, you know, young Black men became suspects, even within our community. The ways that misbehaving Black children were suspected of being so-called crack babies. Yeah. Um, you know, you you can't lose too much weight in the Black community too fast <laughs> without somebody checking in to be like, hey, are you on that shit? You know, to so this to day, to this day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's uh that there were that there was distance that was put there and a lot of people, you know, put put physical distance between themselves and and the community that black neighborhoods became um places that even black folks didn't want to be anymore. So, you know, you saw a big move um uh in the 80s uh into the 90s of upper middle class black folks or just folks that could um to the suburbs. Um, for that reason, you know, a, 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 a subject that, that you've studied a lot, um, gentrification, I believe is a consequence of the crack epidemic mm. that almost to the one, right. That those neighborhoods that are now, um, you know, full of multi-million dollar homes were owned by somebody's grandmother who decided that she just couldn't stay anymore, that there That's were really too many bad point. memories. It's a really good point. You know, so I like to joke and think about, you know, I, uh, this is how I keep myself, um, keep my spirits high when I'm doing work like this, is I imagine uh, the movie about the ghost of the Black folks lost during the crack epidemic haunting their, <laughs> their, 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 their gentrifier counterpoint, or, 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 or counterparts. Sorry, I'm a little sick, but... <laughs> I'd, wa- I'd watch the movie. I'd watch the movie. Okay, Hollywood perfect. ever comes off strike, they can call you. <laughs> I was fascinated to also learn in your book some of the, the just the history of cocaine, which I knew in broad outline, but um, not in this detail. It began as a stimulant that Spanish enslavers gave to the Incas to get greater productivity from their forced labor. How did it evolve into a recreational drug in the late 19th century in Europe and the U.S.? It was really um, powerful to learn that sort of long history of the substance because, um, you know, it went from just leaves that, you know, people in the Andes chewed for a little extra energy to once the... um, Spanish colonizers saw that it energized them, as you explained, that they um, gave it to them to keep them productive. But, you know, once um, European scientists started exploring coca leaves and then refined it into cocaine, it became incredibly popular all over the world. And it was put, um, you know, Sigmund Freud was one of cocaine's um, earliest enthusiasts. He wrote a paper called Uber Coca about what he said was a magical drug. He was he he later had to go into recovery for a cocaine addiction. <laughs> um but <laughs> you know that um it became popular, you know, all over the world. It was in drinks, as many people have heard, like Coca-Cola, because people thought it was sort of a magical tonic that gave you a little extra energy. Right. Um like adding caffeine to something like an energy drink. <laughs> yeah. Um yeah. Sorry, sorry, big caffeine people, but I, you know, use it as an analogy because, you know, that then opens up this understanding of substances and substance use versus substance abuse and the addictive quality of lots of different substances, you know, whether it's sugar or cocaine or um, caffeine or tobacco, right, that these things have impacts on us. And sometimes we think of them differently because of how they're classified, literally just how they're classified by the government. But, um, you know, lots of things have potential for addiction and and harm. At some point, cocaine became associated with Black laborers in the early 20th century. How and why did that happen? You know, as 
had been with the Incas where the drugs became available to them for for productivity. They became available to Black workers on railroads and shipyards. um, And like anything associated with people of color, it then became demonized. So there was this um, idea that cocaine made Black men especially violent. Um, It uh, made Black men do the thing that America has always been afraid of, which is sleep with white women. So there were lots of stories of white women being raped by Black men hopped up on cocaine. Um, Scientists, you know, wrote in the New York Times a paper about Negro cocaine fiends was the part of the headline that cocaine made Black men both better shots with firearms and also impervious to bullets, if you could imagine. I can't imagine. So, <laughs> so, you know, to think of, you know, that idea being sort of baked in that early, even the language. I remember, you know, when I was growing up, that people that were drug addicts were referred to as fiends. That people would say, oh, that's a crack fiend. Um, Tupac says on Dear Mama, even though you were a crack fiend, you always were a black queen. That that language uh, comes in the early 1900s. And we even have an event like the Atlanta race riots kicking off because of stories ran in the Atlanta Journal and the Constitution that Black men had raped white women while they were high on cocaine. So then you have then hundreds of white Atlantans going to Five Points in downtown um, and to Auburn Avenue where lots of the Black bars that presumably sold um, cocaine-laced drinks were and destroying those businesses and then going into the residential neighborhoods and massacring Black communities. So that history and the association of drugs and danger when in the wrong bodies is, you know, over 100 years old. It's also striking how you can hear echoes of that history in the political rhetoric and the ideas that emerged at the height of the crack epidemic. I mean, the idea of the, quote, super predator youth, you know, who have these never-before-seen levels of depravity. It was always there, you know, because, you know, the substance, it could be anything. You know, that it could be any substance, but it just mapped so well onto ideas of Black pathology, right? So whether it's cocaine or whether it's um, cocaine in its smokable form in crack or, you know, marijuana, you could, you know, put any substance in that place and it will be then a great um, explanation for why Black men are X, Y, Z. You know, towards sort of the echoes that continued, you know, we get also this idea of crack addicts being zombies, that that's the language that you see in a Mm. lot of reporting from the era, that crack somehow made these heartless, thoughtless zombies of Black people. And again, it is this language that um, dehumanizes the subject. And once, you know, a person has been dehumanized, then you can do anything to them. It's worth pointing out that that era in the early 1900s that we were talking about, from that comes the first ever federal anti-drug law in 1914. What did that law do? What that law did um, was it made it illegal to possess cocaine. And that becomes a theme, that as a nation, we've always been more focused on drug possession at the user and street dealer level than we have been at the trafficker and supplier level. That we very early on made the decision to criminalize people who are in possession of the substance and not to try to um, what they call interdiction, which is a policy of preventing it from actually entering the country. And the consequences for that is that you don't help often the most vulnerable people that you actually criminalize them um, and thereby sort of creating a cycle of trauma that continues their drug use. And then, you know, later on, that feeds the mass incarceration system.
Your book is built around four characters that you kind of follow throughout their lives. First off, it's striking to me that you're halfway through the book before any of those people actually encounter Crack. Is that intentional yeah. to make Crack kind of the secondary character in this story? It was. It was um, very intentional. You know, the work of this book is in part to sort of like document the crack epidemic and make sure that people have a clear understanding of its rise and fall, but to also make clear its its impact on the lives of human beings. So for me, it was necessary to have those four characters and to weave their stories throughout, but also to uh, explain who they were and what their communities were like before they actually encountered crack so that way people can feel the loss yeah. when crack does come and can also see just how far, how, how deep of a hole they climb out with little to no help. And they're each kind of a story of a place as well. Um, Lenny, one of the characters who is now a drug counselor, uh, really has a harrowing and difficult life story to read um, that includes addiction. Um, and her story is really the story of South Central Los Angeles. So first off, why is South Central such a key location in the history of crack? You know, I would say that both Lenny had to be in the book and South Central had to be in the book. I really couldn't tell this story without talking to the people who experienced the the worst of the epidemic, and that was Black women who found themselves addicted to crack, that they saw what happened from the absolute bottom up. Um, so I was really blessed, I would say, to be able to meet Lenny, to have her share her story with me, and then also for her to, to tell me the story of South Central as this place that was a destination for the Great Migration. Black folks from Louisiana and Texas who got great jobs building airplanes um, and who bought beautiful homes in South Central LA and who, you know, when those jobs went away, their neighborhoods went from working class neighborhoods to areas of concentrated poverty. Mm. And that they are then also these sites for like just great need that people need jobs, that they need something to do, they need places to go. And crack fills that hole. And then LA becomes ground zero for the crack epidemic. Coming up, how Los Angeles became ground zero and what could have been different. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. More with author Donovan Ramsey about his new book, When Crack Was King, after a break. At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But, but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex of bugs. <laughs> Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radiolab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright, and I'm talking with Donovan Ramsey about his new book, When Crack Was King, A People's History of a Misunderstood Era. The book revolves around four characters, each of whom were swept up in the crack epidemic in some way. Linny is a woman whose story is also the story of South Central Los Angeles, where the epidemic really began. Donovan, introduce Linny to us a little bit. Her story is, unfortunately, one of the kind of abuse that is far too common among Black girls. Linny Woodley, um, Miss Woodley, 
as people call her today, is a remarkable drug counselor in Los Angeles who is beloved by her clients, um, who um, she has helped through all types of addiction. And her story starts in South Central LA um, as a little girl who she experiences a lot of isolation um, because she is physically abused by her mother and sexually abused by her uncle, um, who she and her mother live with. And she goes through years of that before she finds a way out. And that was both sex work and drugs. So sex work allowed her to have money and a level of freedom and autonomy. And drugs allowed her to do the sex work. And, you know, that is an important point to make because these things don't just happen in isolation, right? That people try drugs and experiment with drugs for reasons, but they abuse drugs and stay addicted, usually for much larger reasons. And a person's life has to facilitate drug abuse and addiction. And her life created a situation where she was addicted to crack for decades, for nearly 30 years. And Lenny is so funny, so beautiful, so smart. (laughs) You know that, you know, someone does not um, survive on the streets for that long without being clever. And she's exactly that. One of the interesting things about her savvy um, that you describe is, so at age 13, she becomes a sex worker at age 13, and she's traveling back and forth between her life in South Central to Culver City, and she recognizes that her invisibility in Culver City is a tool. Yeah, and Lenny realized that You know, in her neighborhood, people knew her and some people saw her, but that as somebody in, you know, a Black female body that she could move through Culver City, where many of the studios are in Los Angeles, and be ignored by most people, except the Johns that wanted her. Yeah. So she decided that that is where she would do her work, that all that she had to do was get dressed um, and sit at a bus stop in Culver City and men would come that the police wouldn't bother her, people wouldn't ask her why she was there, but the men that wanted her would see her. And and that was what she did. And, and I think that, you know, of course, Lenny made choices that were um, directed really by the trauma that she grew up in. But I think that our society, again, creates a space for that, that um, a lot of people failed Lenny, aside from just her mom and her uncle, that those of us that maintain spaces, um, physical spaces like where she worked as, you know, a sex worker in Culver City, but also just ideas like Black girls are to be overlooked and ignored, that that creates an opportunity for so much harm for the people who see them for the wrong reasons. LA is the launching pad for Freebase Cocaine. Let's start with a 101. What makes Freebase Freebase? Sure. So Freebase is the original name for crack. So if you listen to songs like White Lines by Grandmaster Flash, he says, you know, Freebase, don't do it. And if you get hooked, baby, it's nobody else's fault, so don't do it. And that's a really early, right, like, documentation of this phenomenon. Um, The term comes from a chemistry term, which is to separate the base of a compound from its other elements, thereby making it smokable. So something like powder cocaine, you know, you can't set fire to it and smoke the vapor. It'll just burn the drug and destroy it. Um, It has to go through a chemical process where you get crack essentially. In my research, I tracked down a book called The Pleasures of Cocaine, um, which is available (laughs) on eBay. You can find (laughs) old copies of it just just for the record. Um, (laughs) The Pleasures of Cocaine was published by a 
independent publisher in the Bay Area and sold out of head shops. And, um, and the guy that published it, he was just a drug enthusiast and a hippie um, who had this bookshop near Berkeley who had learned from college students in the area how to do this chemical process where you could take powder cocaine and you could uh, expose it to ether or other volatile chemicals and uh, mix it up and then it would separate its different parts and what rose to the top of this fluid, you could scrape off, it was this little crystal that you could crack into little pieces. So later the name crack comes from that action and smoke it. Um, So I want to highlight that crack comes from the Bay Area and this community of people with chemistry knowledge that, you know, it is not the invention of young men in South Central Los Angeles. It's drug enthusiasts in the late 70s, uh, early 80s who create Freebase. And Freebase in its earliest forms did not really take off because the process was so violent. People would blow themselves up trying to make it. But someone later on figures out a way to do it with regular old baking soda. You mix baking soda. Well, I probably shouldn't tell people how to do it. (laughs) You know, but it's a very simple process. And as a result, um, you can create uh, large quantities of crack from relatively small quantities of powder cocaine, um, which then makes the drug cheaper um, and more accessible. Now, in terms of why people think it's different from powder cocaine, um, that has to do with the fact that anything that you smoke gets immediately into the bloodstream. It's a, it's a more intense high than something that, let's say, you would snort, um, but it's also shorter-lived. So that means that people then binge the drug to stay high. So people just saw that different mode of consumption and pattern of use, and they said, well, it must be more addictive. And in reality, it was always just cocaine. Yeah. You know, that cocaine is cocaine. Who is Rick Ross? <laughs> Not Rick Ross, the hip-hop artist, but Rick Ross, who played an important role in the history of crack cocaine. Introduce us to him. Freeway Ricky Ross was a young man that grew up in South Central in um, the 70s. And um, he was actually a a budding tennis player. And um, Ross was on his way to to college to play tennis, but it was discovered that um, he couldn't really read, that he had been passed grade to grade without ever really being literate. And that completely dashed his dreams of a uh, college tennis career. Um, he then went to trade school. And in trade school, he met a guy who was a Nicaraguan national who asked him, hey, you ever thought about selling drugs? <laughs> <laughs> it just so happened that, you know, he had that uh, he had a friend who had introduced him to selling powder cocaine. But he was able, through this connect that he met in trade school, to get his hands on literal tons of cocaine. And um, he learns the recipe for free base cocaine made with baking soda, um, so the safe, non-volatile way of doing it. And unlike other drug dealers of his time, he is a businessman who decides that he could create a large network through friends of his that were Bloods and Crips, and he could build an empire. And that's exactly what he does. So he becomes sort of the the godfather of crack because he's the guy that um, names it Ready Rock. He's the one that spreads the recipe through this network of um, gangbangers and, and drug dealers. You know, he does for crack what, you know, McDonald's does for the hamburger, which is its marketing, its placement, and he created an empire as a result. Part of the what happens for Rick Ross, as I understand it, um, and allows this, you know, turning cocaine into McDonald's, is the affordability of cocaine at the moment. Why did cocaine suddenly become so affordable? So um, we had a glut 
of cocaine in the United States in the late 70s and early 80s. And this is because the federal government's sort of drug policy um, under Richard Nixon, his, you know, he declares the war on drugs. Um, he sets up these offices that are focused primarily on heroin and marijuana coming through Mexico. So for, you know, the rest of the 70s and the early 80s, cocaine is just coming into the U.S. from Central America, and all of that activity goes really uninterrupted by the U.S. government. So then cocaine's everywhere, right? It becomes super popular and really glamorous in the 70s. You can look back to magazines like Esquire and GQ, and they're selling, you know, little cocaine spoons that hang from your neck. And that's how just regular it was in the American imagination. So, you know, by the time Rick Ross is ready to become Rick Ross, there's so much cocaine available. And he meets this guy um, who becomes sort of his plug, who becomes his connect, that can get him really endless amounts of cocaine. And, um, you know, the reasons for that are vast. (laughs) But uh, I will speak specifically to a sort of geopolitical situation in the 1980s where, you know, the people of Nicaragua had elected a president that the U.S. government was not fond of. And we wanted to disrupt what was happening in that country. And there was an effort from the Reagan administration to give them funding and to give them weapons and that had been denied by Congress. So a lot of folks might remember the incident with Ali North, the Mm Iran-Contra affair, where a plane crashed in Nicaragua that was full of weapons from the United States. And it was exposed that we had this covert operation where if we couldn't send them money, we would just send them guns. Uh, What was later exposed was that the Contras were not only receiving guns from the U.S. government, but that the U.S. government was in many cases turning a blind eye while they trafficked cocaine into the United States. We are not taking calls this week, but I suspect if we were, this would be the subject of most calls. And I guess what I want to ask you is, to put it in context, someone who has now, you know, done this exhaustive study of this epidemic, where does the fact of the U.S. government's complicity in the shipment of cocaine into, into the United States, where does that fit in the story of the epidemic? I do believe that a policy of interdiction would have kept the crack epidemic from happening. That is not the same as saying the U.S. government engineered crack and dropped it in our communities. I think that the U.S. government neglected to interrupt something that was obviously harming communities of color because it didn't care. You know, and then individual politicians then made careers of continuing, doubling, advancing that harm. Writing this book really exposed for me just how deep the harm goes in America when it comes to anti-Blackness. I, I came out of this process understanding that Blackness is not just a racial identity, that Blackness is a position in this country. That to be Black is to be positioned the closest to harm. Having having gone through this, this study... Where's a point where you look at it and say, we could have done something different right here. This would have been different if we had made a different choice right here. You know, I think that if we had beefed up our healthcare system, so that way those first-line healthcare workers could identify what someone going through addiction looked like and put them into a treatment program, that we would have saved a lot of lives and we would have ended the epidemic early. Um, And that's to say nothing of, an actual effort to disrupt the flow of drugs into this country. Um, 
The same can be said for the drug epidemic that we're dealing with now, which is opioids, that we are living through an opioid crisis because there was a glut of prescription meds in this country and that that was not disrupted, that we allowed those drug traffickers in the form of big pharma to push their product to as many people as possible. And they got people hooked. And then finally, when it was time for us to step in, people could no longer get access to prescription pills. So they went to street drugs like heroin. Then once folks got hooked on heroin and that becomes harder to get, you get a synthetic opioid in the form of fentanyl that is um, also has a really high likelihood of, of overdose. And we're still now dealing with that third wave of uh, the opioid crisis. Did you find what you were looking for writing this book? You know, I did. I did, Kai. I have to say that I am, um, that when I started writing When Crack Was King, it was because there was not a book that explained Crack's rise and fall to me, but also explained to me how my community experienced it and how it was that we survived it. And, um, you know, there are lots of things that I would change about the book, <laughs> as I'm sure, you know, any writer would want to go back and do another draft. But, um, but I feel ultimately I have those answers and there's enough there to start a conversation that I hope that anybody that reads this book and sees a familiar scene or remember somebody that they lost touch with, that it's easier for them to have that conversation because this book exists. Donovan Ramsey is author of the new book, When Crack Was King, A People's History of a Misunderstood Era. Notes from America is a production of WNYC Studios. Find us wherever you get your podcasts and on Instagram at Notes with Kai. We're trying out a lot of new stuff there on Instagram, so come check us out and talk to us. We will always respond. Theme music by Jared Paul. Mixing this week by Mike Kutchman. Reporting, producing, and editing by Billy Estreen, Karen Frillman, Regina Dehir, Hima Nasa, Kusha Navadar, and Lindsay Foster-Thomas. Andre Robert Lee is our executive producer, and I am Kai Wright. And I will talk to you next week. Notes from America is supported by Future Hindsight, an award-winning podcast that shares big ideas about participating in American democracy beyond voting, but short of running for office. Join host Mila Atmos for stimulating and incisive conversations with citizen changemakers on topics ranging from gerrymandering, policing equity, and voting rights. In this election year, Future Hindsight offers an unaffiliated perspective into what's at stake and how citizens can make an impact at the local, state, and national level. You'll always come away with something hopeful. Tune in every Thursday to get engaged and stay engaged.